is kind of chilly in here. That's good for me. Okay, I hope you all have a handout. If not, there's some being passed out in the back. If you need one, just raise your hand. A word about the handout. I started off yesterday really good about giving you some detailed information. And if you look on the back side, I just gave you a bunch of blanks for you to write your own notes. Because I didn't want to give you five pages so you can uh, write notes as we discuss some topics. Um, we'll try to get through all of this material today. Um, well, welcome. This is our first um, installment on church history for this time. Um, yeah, you assumed we needed, we had some. <laughs> I know, I know. That was my first request, is look for a McKenzie. Excuse me, while my wife is distracting me, so that's okay. Okay, so this is about my eighth time to teach church history here, and I got into the uh, 20th century last time, and I decided I didn't want to deal with the 21st century, so we're starting over, and I, I will leave the first century or the 21st century to Dan and Brent to address from the pulpit. Um, so now we are starting over in the Book of Acts with the first century church. Um, Last time I began using the whiteboard for multimedia presentations, and I will continue that today. And you can see I even gave you the opportunity to create your own timeline as we discuss the events of Acts in the first century church, um, just so you know that. Um, why do we teach church history here at Calvary Bible Church? That is a question, and for those of you that don't know, we kind of go through a series of adult Sunday school classes. The first thing we talk about which is what Andy did the last uh, few weeks, is church, uh, biblical survey, and he finished uh, Second Samuel last week. Then I've been appointed the teacher of church history, and after church history, we generally talk about um, systematic theology. Um, we have various teachers for that. Uh, Brent does a series of lessons on apologetics usually, probably not this summer, but somebody else will pick that up. And then we do something on Christian living, so we kind of rotate those things. Um, it tells us something that church history is second, so church history must be important. We must study it, and I thought maybe if I could find my notes here, I'd give you a couple ideas of why we study church history. Um, I stole this from a well-known president of a seminary's blog um, to tell us why we study church history. Just as an introduction, we'll talk about that. And then we'll get into where we're going the next six weeks. And I've got ten points here for you. You do not need to write these down, but you can just get an idea of what it means to study church history and why we do that. One thing is, there's kind of an indictment of the church in America. Um, you know, America is a young country compared to European countries. Um, and probably not so for uh, Calvary Bible Church, per se. Um, I think most, most people here have a good grasp of church history, but... The church in America has a relatively young view of itself. Um, so there's a need for us to study the history of the church, in my opinion. And generally in America, we're all about what's happening right now, what's happening in the present. You know, we forget what the news was last week most times, and I couldn't even tell you what it was. Um, but why do we look at studying the church? Um, one point is it affirms the biblical value of looking to the past. Throughout the Old Testament, the Israelites are commanded to remember, to remember the works of what the Lord has done. And our study of church history also is telling us, is, is pointing us to seeing what the Spirit has done and, built, and God has done in building his church. It also tells us the rest of the story. Um, it kind of ends abruptly in Acts. Acts 28 ends with Paul still in prison. So we want to see the continued building of God's church throughout the history of his church. One thing it does also is it frees us from faddishness. So it, it, it frees us from contemporary interpretations that might not have validity in the church, in the history of the church. Um, C.S. Lewis compared the, um, the uh, reader or the studier of history to a person who has lived in many places. He says, this person is not likely to be deceived by the local errors of his native village. The scholar has lived in many times and is therefore, in some degree, immune from the great 
cataract of nonsense that pours from the press in the microphone of his own age. So we get an idea of that. Um, it's also an antidote to arrogance that we have all the answers from today. Uh, historian Paul Johnson in, from England says, the study of history is a powerful antidote to the contemporary arrogance. It is humbling to discover how many of our glib assumptions, which seem to us novel and plausible, have been tested before, not once, but many times, and in innumerable guises, and discovered to be at great human cost. So these things that we take for granted have cost people their lives in holding true to the faith. Um, it exposes to us some of the issues faced by the church in every age. No new heresies. They're all disguised in different ways, so we can see that. Um, helps us see further than we naturally can on our own. Uh, one of the early church leaders, Bernard of Clairvaux, said, we are like dwarves on the shoulders of giants, but as dwarfs we are able to see farther than others only as long as we do not climb down from the giant shoulders. So when we teach history, we're standing on the shoulders of the apostles. We're standing on the shoulders of Augustine. We're standing on the shoulders of Calvin and Luther and Edwards and all these great, great men who have researched on our behalf in building God's church. It gives us insight into our own culture. It provides warnings about what to look for and what not to do. You guys have heard it said that those who do not learn the lessons of history are doomed to repeat it. And it can be used to spark a longing for awakening and revival. And I think the most important thing that it does in studying the church is it implants hope in dark times. Our hope is not fixed on the day that's happening right now. Our hope is fixed on something that's happened in eternity past um, by the Lord Jesus and the Father. So those are just several reasons why we study church history. It's a big deal. Some would refer to church history as the study of the Third Testament um, so there's much help that we can um, ascertain from that. So one of the challenges I have each time I um, teach is sifting through the um, many resources that are available for church history. Thankfully, this time, I have one, and it's the book of Acts. And uh, there's some commentaries and things like that that I'm using as well, but it's pretty exciting just to see God's word in history that the book of Acts is. So we have the perfect inspired word of God as our textbook. Our study will focus on the founding of the church and its rapid spread into the world. History would never be the same after the book of Acts. All of history has been directed to the time of Jesus' coming and his perfect sacrifice. And all of history since then points back to that event as the central event in the world. And the world is eagerly awaiting the reappearance of the so that's exciting. So where are we going? Today, I wanted to kind of go through just kind of an, an overview, and not really an overview, just an introduction to the book of Acts and the birth of the church. Um, this timeline, I'm going to show you, and we'll get to this in a second, we'll go from 30 to about 62, 60 to 62. This is the period of Acts. But I also want to give you a little view of the rest of the first century to see what events are happening in the world in Jerusalem and in the Roman Empire. Um, next week, we'll talk about the birth of the church in Jerusalem, Pentecost, primarily Peter's messages. Um, the third week, we'll look at the opposition to the church and its expansion. The fourth week, we'll talk about Peter and the advent of Gentile Christianity. And the fifth and sixth weeks, we'll talk about Paul's missionary travels and his imprisonment and travel to Rome. Okay, I hope that's ample time for introduction for you guys. If you could turn into your Bibles, let's start in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 4, 4 through 6. So we'll read this and then we'll pray. Galatians 4, 4 through 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. 
dear Lord, it's the reality of history that you brought forth your son through the fullness of time. Lord, you brought forth your son. Um, You were preparing the ages leading up all the events of the world to bring forth your son and um, so he could live a perfect life. He could be righteous, Lord, and that he could be sacrificed on our behalf so that we might have fellowship with you, Lord. And that's a great, great truth, and we worship you because of that. Lord, as we take to studying the growth of your church, Lord, Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened to your work, to your sovereign hand, moving the events of history and your spirit's work in the lives of men and women in order to proclaim your great name. Lord, pray that you would bless this time. Lord, happy it's a happy resurrection day for us, Lord. We can celebrate the fact that we are um, that we have a hope, a hope that is everlasting, that's eternal in the perfect um, righteousness and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Okay, let's look at this timeline. There is a lot of dates here. So um, I wanted to get this up there so we can talk about these things as we go. Maybe I'll keep this up there and do it each week so you can remember. Okay, you've got your little notes there if you want to follow along. All right, so cross, resurrection day. Approximately 30 to 33 is when AD is when Jesus Jesus, um, dies on the cross. There's some interpretations out there that maybe Jesus was born in like 4 B.C. or 3 B.C. if you break it down. But we'll just go with this as a general outline. For... On here for 35, right here, we've got Stephen's death. So I've got several important events in Acts. So Stephen's death, martyrdom. I'm going to run out of room here. For 34 through 37, 35 through 37, we have Paul, Paul's persecution and his conversion. All that happened within that time frame. 40 is the advent of Gentile Christianity. And that's when Peter baptized uh, Cornelius. Roughly 49 AD is Paul's first missionary journey. So we'll say Paul first. MJ, we're going to keep going with that. 50 is the Council of Jerusalem. And from 52 to 55, it's Paul's second missionary journey. Excuse me, that's his third. I missed one. Right here, 51. All right, good luck working that out if you have a pen. Um, 60, right here, Paul's arrested. Sixty-two, Acts is written. Sixty Between 60 and 62, we'll talk about that date and why I think that's accurate here in a second. Um, and this time... Most of Paul's epistles are written. Okay. Probably around 50 as well, Mark is written. This is the history of Acts, 30 to 62. That's Acts. 64, it's the beginning of of Nero's persecution of the church. Sixty-six, Roman and Jewish war begins. Sixty-seven, Peter and Paul, not married, martyred. Didn't pass that up. Sixty-eight is the death of Nero. Uh, suicide, actually. This is the Roman Empire emperor of the time. Seventy, 
this is really poorly, not very symmetrical here, the temple is destroyed. Seventy-three, the end of the war at Masada. Um, John, over here in the 90s, this is where we get most of our stuff from John. His writings, his exile where he wrote Revelation. And then his death. So John lived a long time. And then 81 to the 90s is the period of Domitian, the Roman emperor. And there's much persecution of Christians during that time, too. Okay. So I'm sure you can't read any of that because I'm a very, very poor writer. But I hope that gives you an idea here. So Acts. This is Acts right here. This is all we're dealing with. It's important to highlight this, though, because there's some questions in history about when Acts was written, and we'll get to that in a second. But the top is Acts. This is the other events that are going on in the church um, and society at that time. Um, so let's get to some general information about Acts. Some other names for Acts besides just the book of Acts, also called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, some commentaries, though, have other names for it. First would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Or the, the next one would be the Autobiography of the Holy Spirit. That being the Holy Spirit inspiring the writing of the scriptures. Then others have called it the Acts of Peter and Paul. Those are the primary apostles of which it talks about. The other names are the Acts of the Holy Spirit, the Autobiography of the Holy Spirit, and the Acts of Peter and Paul. The author, even though he doesn't identify himself in the work, um, based on good interpretation, is Luke, who is a physician and companion of Paul. So Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He was a physician by trade and was with Paul on many of his missionary journeys. And his work as a historian makes him one of the more reliable historians of the ancient world. So he's well-educated, polished writer. His Greek, for people that know Greek, not me, um, is considered of the highest degree um, in the New Testament. On many of Paul, he was a, he was a member of many of Paul's uh, groups on his missionary endeavors. So he was able to give firsthand accounts to Paul's missionary journeys. Um, interestingly enough, um, he's also a well-respected, reliable historian. Um, many of the things and many of the, the, the geography and the times that he talks about as far as rulers and stuff, um, has been scrutinized by many secular historians and has been proven to be very true and reliable. As far as time, when it was written, probably between 60 and 62 A.D., A.D. 60 and 62. So Paul is arrested, and he's actually in prison in Rome from 60 to 62. Luke is not in prison with Paul. So it gave him ample time since he wasn't on the journeys to um, write his accounts both of Jesus and of um, the book of Acts. Like I said, it records events between 30 and 62 A.D. Some argue that um, it was written actually in the 80s. The 80s, not the 1980s. Um, however... Because of the precision of Luke as a historian and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, um, it's unlikely that it would be that late of a date. These are very monumental events to the church. Nero, the death of Nero, Peter and Paul being martyred, the, de the destruction of the temple, these are huge events. If Paul, I mean, if, if Luke had written 
here in the 80s, he surely would have included all this stuff in his work. Okay, um, So I think that biblical scholars have landed on the fact, most conservative biblical scholars have landed on the fact that it happened, he wrote it between 60 and 62. Um, I, I think we would want to know in the scriptures if it had occurred about Peter and Paul's martyrdom. That there would have been a great benefit to that. And how do we react to the fact that the temple was destroyed? Well, because Paul doesn't mention those things, it's very likely that he wrote before that. Um, especially in also the persecution um, under the Roman Emperor Nero. And just a quick fact about Nero, he accused the Christians of burning down Rome when most likely he did it himself. Um, and he used that as an impetus to um, persecute the Christians. So, 60 to 62 AD, um, and the next blank would be AD 70 for the temple being destroyed. The book of Acts is actually a second volume, and we'll talk about the primary scriptures we're going to look at today are the prologues, both to the Gospel of Luke and the uh, book of Acts, and also Jesus' ascension in both of those works. Um, his first work, of course, is the Gospel of Luke. Man, I'm jumping ahead of myself. Did y'all get number five? Oh, wait, oh, we're good, we're good. Acts is the second of two volumes. That's where we are. It was most likely written during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. That's 60 to 62. The timeliness of it being written was probably very soon after the Gospel of Luke. Not a whole lot of time in between the two. He wasn't traveling with Paul because Paul was in prison, and he had ample time to interview eyewitnesses and research his work. Okay, so the place of Acts in the canon of Scripture. It's in between the Gospels and the Epistles for a reason. It gives a historical setting to Paul's letters, and even gives us information on how those churches were established. Within the canon of Scripture, Acts is placed right after the Gospels and before the apostolic letters. It gives the proper historical setting for the New Testament. Acts also played a major role in correcting the heresy. Jumping ahead to the next century, but it's important so we talk about this. The heresy of a man named Marcion in the second century. It was Marcion's contention that Paul wanted to start an entirely new religion that was not connected to the Old Testament. So in um, the, the canonization of scriptures that occurred in the first and second century, there was a, um, Acts kind of served as a bridge to connect um, Paul and the Gospels. Marcion actually had created his own scriptures, and he laid them out in two sections. It was the gospel, so it included the gospel works about Jesus and the apostle, and it was strictly Apostle Paul. No writings of Peter, no writings of John, and so he was trying to set that up as that there was no reason for um, us to rely upon the Old Testament scriptures. So it was an interesting um, effort by the early church fathers in their development of the canon. Let's see. All right, so that gets us to number seven. The purpose of Acts is to document Jesus' final marching orders to the disciples, the arrival of the Holy Spirit. I think I gave you a blank, and the Holy Spirit. Must have been late. And the obedience of the apostles to fulfill Jesus' words through the power of the Holy Spirit. What themes can we see in Acts? These are just, a, there's, there's probably more. But I gave you about eight. The first is God's sovereign hand to build his church. Is God's work in building his church. B is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit is now on the scene as Jesus had promised. 
and he is leading uh, the apostles through power, through deed, so just the Holy Spirit. Uh, C is the church's obedience. So they're following Jesus' example of f- to fulfill the Great Commission. This is one that I, in my study, came across, and it's the primacy that's a big word, of preaching. Primacy of preaching. There are 14 major sermons recorded in Acts that should tell us something, that God is speaking through the preaching of his word. Um, The apostleship of Paul, several times, the apostleship of Paul is is mentioned, and Paul's conversion is as well. It's also a work of apologetics. It's F. Just as a side to these, you don't need to write these down, but where is it an apologetic work? Well, Jesus is, it's trying to prove that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah to the Jews, but, it's all, but he's also available to the Gentiles. It argues for, and it's proven that the Holy Spirit is moving. Also, a defense of Paul's apostleship, and also the transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant how that looks in the church. So those are all things, themes of apologetics that we'll see in Acts. G is suffering. The church is suffering as it grows. And then H. The church is God's witness to the world. No longer is it the nation of Israel that represents God, but the church does. And it's comprised of Jews and Gentiles in a miraculous conglomeration of people. So those are themes we will talk about as we go through the book of Acts. So we kind of need to look at what is the world like? What's the world like? in this time, in the setting of the book of Acts. Um, So we're going to talk about the historical context for the book of Acts. So we'll talk about kind of some geography, some governmental things, culture, various things. So in the land of Israel, Palestine, the promised land, whatever you want to call it, the Romans call it Palestine, just so you know, um, the promised land in around, around 300 B.C. had been conquered. I don't have room on my timeline here had been conquered by Alexander the Great. Okay, so Alexander the Great kind of went out from Macedonia, and he conquered all the known world at the time, all under one reign. Alexander's goal was not just to take over areas and have them report to his kingdom. One of the things he wanted to do was um, um, kind of spread the Greek philosophy, Greek culture of the day, um, to um, all of the other areas of the known world. We call that process Hellenization. So, so the Hellenization of culture wherever Alexander the Great went and conquered lands. So he brought that influence of Greek culture to Jerusalem and to Judea. Some Jews accepted it and others did not. And pretty much there was tension about that for the next 400 years, culminating in destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Um, in, 63, in 63 B.C., Rome conquered the land. Let me back up one second. So after Alexander the Great dies, his kingdoms are divided up, I think, by, with, or his one kingdom is divided up into, like, four different, like, realms with his generals. And so that there's kind of a, this fight constantly for the land of Judea between the Syrians and the Egyptians. It's right there. You know, it's really a popular area. People want to have control of that area because of the, the trade routes. And um, so there is a constant source of tension um, between the neighboring countries. But in 63 B.C., Rome conquered Israel, or the land. We'll call it Judea. How about that? Um, and they... When Rome conquered it, they somewhat allowed the Jews to worship freely. We'll talk about that in a second. Somewhat. Um, They appointed 
Herod, who actually was had a, was of Jewish origin, um, and he tried to further Hellenize the people and the culture and the land. He built temples um, throughout the land, and um, some of the Jews that were um, most excited um, about that got most up in arms when he tried to place a, a, a I think, a statue of an eagle at the front of the temple that would have represented um, a worship of Roman gods. But there was constant rebellion against the Roman empires by some of the Jews, primarily a group of people called the Zealots. Um, and that kind of leads us into what the Jewish culture was like at this time. There was many sects in um, Judaism at the time. Obviously, Pastor Dan's been talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and their rule over the people in the temple. But there was also the Zealots and uh, a group of people called the Essenes as well. Um, and all of those people, they all had different views on what's supposed to happen in life, but they all believed in two things. One, they were monotheistic. When you're monotheistic, you believe in one God. It's contrary to the Roman belief. There's a pantheon of gods. Um, and they also believed in a future escho oh my goodness, can I say it? eschatological hope. There was hope that the Messiah was coming, and he was visibly going to set up his kingdom to rescue the Jewish people. God would fulfill his promise to set up a kingdom of peace and justice. This was the hope of the Jewish nation. Some people felt they were compelled to, to you know, counteract the uh, Roman rulers. That was the zealots. They thought their actions would bring about the Messiah. Um, so it was their, uh, they felt, felt that, there was their, that was their duties. However, most of these sects, the Sadducees, the Zealots, the Essenes, and to some degree the Pharisees, their eschatological hope was crushed at the time the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Another group we should talk about besides just the, the land itself, the Jews, I have got to hurry, um, was the dispersed Jews. So there's a lot of Jews that had um, been dispersed throughout the neighboring lands that were no longer just in the area of Judea. So there was a sizable Jewish population in most of the major cities. Um, and if you look at the life of Paul, where does he go every time he goes into a city? You guys know? Yeah, he goes to the meeting place of where the Jews are. So he's going to the Jews first. Well, that tells you that there are Jewish centers of worship in all of the known land, um, or at least the, the Roman Empire. So that's one of the main avenues that God used uh, for Christianity to spread throughout the empire. So these dispersed Jews, more so than their um, domestic uh, countrymen in Judea, embraced Hellenism, including some aspects of Greek philosophy. Another thing that they did, by being immersed in these other cultures, they lost the Hebrew language as their primary language for speaking. So they spoke Greek and Aramaic, depending on where they were. More Western, they were speaking Greek. More Eastern, they were speaking Aramaic. Um, and the, really, I guess the key is the, the, the scriptures were hard for them to understand if they didn't know the Hebrew language. So the scriptures were translated in this dispersed, these dispersed areas into Greek. So the Greek Septuagint is the Old Testament in Greek. Tradition says that there was about 70 translators who came together and were going to translate the scriptures. They all, all 70 of them, translated the scriptures independently. They came together and their works were exactly the same in their translation from the Hebrew into the Greek. So it is also called the Septuagint, meaning 70, LXX, the Roman numerals. And the New Testament authors quote the Greek Septuagint for the most part. Christ is the Greek for anointed one or Messiah. So that's an important cultural aspect we need to understand. The next group or culture that we need to look at is the Greco-Roman culture that was in the Roman Empire. Okay, so huge, huge empire is the Roman Empire. And what, what's amazing about the Roman Empire, generally speaking, there was political unity under the power of the empire. Um, so within that 
course, you had the Jews always rebelling. Uh, <laughs> but the, but the, the Romans, um, for the most part, in their land, were able to keep relative peace by the strength of their power and some of their shrewdness in their political dealings. Um, so it was within the, the Hellenistic culture, the Roman Empire had embraced a lot of the aspects of the Hellenistic culture. Within the Hellenistic culture of the Roman Empire that the church was formed. Interestingly enough, travel through the Mediterranean seas was relatively safe. There was not a lot of piracy. Um, probably 100 years before, if you're traveling around the Mediterranean Sea, there might have been severe threats of piracy. The most, there's no re record in Acts of any of Paul's ships being attacked by pirates. But there were issues with weather, obviously, because he was shipwrecked several times. Um, uh, most of the provinces of the Roman Empire had well-paved roads that were guarded, so it was safe. It was safe to travel amongst those areas. Uh, trade was flourishing, so the Roman Empire, there was definitely uh, an economic aspect to it. Everybody kind of was buying into this uh, newfound wealth that could be found by trade um, in, in the safety of both the roads and the sea, uh, so trade was flourishing. And that's an interesting aspect is many of the Christian missionaries, we'd say, were actually tradespeople. You know, they were going from place to place telling of the gospel. And, of course, Paul used the roads and the uh, seas to travel to other areas. However, there was a threat in the empire to Christianity, and that was the religious uniformity that was desired by Roman rule. So what happened when Rome conquered an area? They kind of appeased the people they took over. So they go and they go at they attack a land and they, you know, take over. But what they do is they take that that uh, the gods or the the religious symbols of that area, and they would incorporate them into the Roman um, Roman religion. So that's where you get quote unquote the pantheon of Roman gods. So you've got this idea of Greek and Roman religion, but then every time they they attack a place, they bring on some more gods and they put them in there and. So they kind of assimilate all the gods of the known world into this Roman pantheon of religion. Does that make sense? So who's diametrically opposed to that you know, all-encompassing view of all these gods? Are the Jews and the Christians because they're monotheistic. They believe in one God. Um, so that is a source of contention for the Christians and also the Jews, and that's part of, part of the reason why the there was much effort against the Jews in the 60s and 70s. Um, what we call the term, if you just want to write this down, for them assimilating all these uh, religions is called religious syncretism. So bringing all religions, a melting pot, you might say. Another aspect of Roman religion, though, that really got everybody in trouble was the view of emperor worship. The, um, in the realm, the people that were citizens of the empire were required to worship the Roman emperor. And this is what got the Christians in trouble primarily with Nero. Nero had kind of put the view of emperor worship on a higher level and the refusal of the apostles and the Christians to do so led to the persecution of the Christians in the 60s. So that kind of gives us a, a setting, at least, for um, the culture of which the church was established. Do you all have any questions about that before we move on? I have like 10 minutes, so good. Good response. Okay, so let's look at the text. Wow, this is going to be tough. Okay, we'll look at the prologues. That's what we'll get to. Um, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. So there's two volumes that Luke has written. It's Luke and the book of Acts. So let's just read what, what Luke says. What is his purpose? His purpose statement in both of these, kind of for both of these books, kind of flows out of Luke chapter 1. I'll read that just for time's sake. Okay. So this is Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Okay, it says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word 
have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And if you turn over to Acts, real quick, Acts chapter 1. We'll read just one through three. In the first book, so the first book is Luke, O Theophilus, so he's still writing to Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He pre presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about them and speaking about the kingdom of God. But we'll go ahead and go through four. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Okay, so what we can take from these two prologues is, obviously, Luke is a historian. He's not just, he's making an orderly account so that Theophilus will be certain of the things that he's already been taught. So other accounts have been written about Jesus. We, from tradition, we understand that Mark had already been written around 50 A.D., but there's other works about Jesus that have been written, and there's you know, many, many gospels of Jesus that were written that aren't included in the canons of Scripture, some of which are included in the Catholic Apocrypha, but um, there were other works that had been written. Luke's, the key here is in, if you look at Luke chapter 1, is Luke uses, when I say Luke, just, just for Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, this is obviously it's an inspired work, but for, for uh, time's sake I'll just say Luke. Um, Luke used eyewitness accounts to build his narrative. He interviewed key figures, and he also witnessed many of the things that he recorded in Acts. Um, in, it, according to church tradition, it was before he wrote the book of Luke, that he actually interviewed Mary about the uh, about all those events surrounding Jesus's birth. Luke gives us the most detailed account of that, um, and there's many things in Luke. And, and Dan was even reading today uh, to start the service in the book of Luke. He's just very precise in his uh, in his uh, his writing. Um, I like that word. It's, he's, there's a precision about his work. He provides details like dates, rulers, and places just to make it a reliable history. Um, we believers know that it is to be the inspired word of God, and it's replete with accurate historical ev evidence of the time period. I mean, it's you can go back and verify this stuff. Um, that's why we can be confident of the date of the early A.D. 60s for when it was written. Luke would have included that other history that's not a part um, because those things are so monumental. Okay, so what does the prologue say about the goal of Acts? Um, we really can't read the, the book of Acts without under, having an understanding of the prologue of Luke 2. So in Luke 1, he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm putting forth a lot of effort here to interview the people. This is about Jesus. In the book of Acts, is it's about the Acts of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Holy Spirit has done to build his church so we have to use both the prologues from Luke and Acts to understand what he's doing. He wants to instruct with certainty this man named Theophilus for what he's been taught. He wants to provide him an orderly account. And the book of Acts in the prologue implies that Acts is the account of what Jesus continued to do and to teach his church after his ascension through the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's, if you look at the last in chapter 1 of Acts, verse 5, it says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So all of this work for the next 27 chapters in Acts, 28 chapters, is the work of the Holy Spirit through believers, through the apostles, through the church. That's the, that's the theme of Acts. I think that's the primary theme. Okay. So he's trying to give Theophilus, this mysterious Theophilus we can talk about in a second, more information about who Jesus is and the rise of the church. So who's Theophilus? Why is he such an important character to us in, in, in history? 
Um, in Luke 1, he's referred to as most excellent Theophilus. So there's a, there's a view that Theophilus might be just like the general person, the general believer. If you translate Theophilus, it means beloved or lover of God. So it's a thought that Luke is writing this work to just the general Christian population of the day. However, the fact that he calls him most excellent, he's pointing out this a person. So there's this person in history somewhere that has been under, has had some teaching of Christ. And Paul's goal is to give him more teaching of who Christ is and what he's doing through his church in the book of Acts. Um, some believe he could be a high-ranking official in Rome. I mean, th- this, the text doesn't say that. But there's some, some, some thought behind that. And maybe he's even one of the ones that Paul had witnessed to when he was in Rome. Because you remember, Paul was able to witness to the Roman guard and even had some success in witnessing to some of the higher-ranking officials in Rome at the time. Um, but whoever he is, the purpose of it is to provide him an account of the things of Christ and of the building of the church through the Holy, by the Holy Spirit. So just a little historical background for you on that. Um, Okay, real quick, let's read. Okay, I've got actually seven minutes here. So let's real quick read about the ascension of Jesus in both Acts and Luke. And we'll talk about, let's read Luke's first. So Luke 24. So Luke, he, he talks about Jesus ascending in Luke 24, and then he does it again in Acts 1. I think he's going through the history like expositionally, and he's just going back and reviewing what he last talked about, um, kind of like Pastor Dan would do. So Luke 24, 44 through 53. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God. So Jesus' ascension is the, what, the first thing he's pointing out. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. So this is important. Um, that these, the followers of Jesus should preach repentance and forgiveness, not just in Jerusalem, but to all the nations. It's a, it's a new concept. Sending the Spirit, the Spirit is going to be sent as the promise. He commanded them to remain in Jerusalem until the Spirit came, and then he ascends. One, one of the arguments why some people believe that even Luke was written later is because of its emphasis on the Old Testament to try to correct that, that view, that heresy of Marcion. But what it is is it's just the truth of God's word. I mean, God knew that that, need to, that heresy needed to be corrected beforehand, and it's the true gospel that it is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Um, so that's, that's kind of a quick summary of what Luke says about the ascension of Jesus, what it says in Luke. So what does Luke say in Acts? Let's go there. Acts 1, 4 through 11. We already read 4 and 5, but we'll read it again. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still having that eschatological, physical hope at this time. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea, in Samaria, into the end of the earth. It's kind of the progression that Acts follows. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, 
Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So some similarities, uh, and then some other information. First, they were again ordered not to depart from Jerusalem. Stay here. The Holy Spirit is coming. Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Holy Spirit is upon you. And the disciples ask a question in this, in this account. And like, hey, when are you going to restore your kingdom? I mean, that's what we're most excited about. And he tells them that you are to be my witnesses by the power of the Spirit. First in Jerusalem, and then just the area around Jerusalem, Judea, then into Samaria, you know, the, the half-Jews, and then into the Gentile lands, into all the earth. And then he ascends, and in this account, the angels uh, talk about the promise that Christ will return similarly to how he ascended. So he's coming again upon a cloud to rescue his church. Um, so these are two distinct accounts, but the one in Acts really sets forward what the church is going to do to fulfill the Great Commission. And it says that they're going to first be filled with the Holy Spirit in Jerusalem, and then they're going to go to the rest of Judea, then they're going to go to Samaria, and then they're going to go to the ends of the earth. So that's kind of the theme for the church, the church's obedience to um, Christ's last words in Acts. Um, I had on my notes to talk about the disciples returning to the upper room and the choosing of Matthias, but we'll touch on those next week. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Good. All right. Well, you all have a happy Resurrection Day, okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we praise you for this day. Lord, we praise you for the hope that we have um, because of the resurrection, Lord. Lord, we are a people um, that are abundantly blessed, and we worship you because of that. We ask that this day would be honoring and pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray.